Welcome to Coffee, Cake and Culture, the podcast. This is Andy Bromberger and Rob. And I think, Rob, we need to give you a surname. Like yeah, no, I'll, I'll take Caldor. So, yes, look, I've been doing Rob the whole time because it's, you know, it, this is Andy's baby. She, we're, we're talking history of music and the history of these classes and things that you've run as many years, isn't it? Yes, it is. It is. But it suddenly occurred to both of us, I think, that you've been Rob and we need you to have your proper name. So it's Robert Caldor. But Rob, how are you today? I'm very well. Very excited uh, for another episode, Andy. And you may hear some uh, noises in the background because we have another guest involved. We do. We have a special guest. Um, it is a four-legged creature. It's a little dog, a terrier dog, called Teddy, and it's Rob's dog. And Rob will tell you about the four-legged creature in the, in the room today. So Teddy is a Tenterfield terrier. Now, if you know the song by Peter Allen called uh, Tenterfield Saddler about his grandfather... His grandfather actually developed the breed. Andy, I'm excited to hear what we're talking about, but you know what really excites me? Yes, the treat that you're going to get at the end of it. So the treat today is a biscuit. It's a biscuit, Rob, that I actually found on the internet. It came on one of my feeds yesterday, and I thought it just sounded feed. (laughs) And you make a beautiful butter dough, and you then put on top of the butter dough... um, Something called lotus um, spread. I don't know if you know what that is. It's sort of like a biscuit spread. Well, I didn't have a lot of that, so I used that and peanut butter and Nutella and a whole lot of stuff that I'd sort of found in my pantry and spread that over the top. Then you roll it all up, and you basically have these beautiful biscuits that like look like pinwheels of circles of chocolate and butter biscuit and they're pretty yummy so I hope you enjoy it at the end of this just as Teddy is enjoying his kibble that he's eating as we are talking. Looking look, looking forward to it and it does look pretty special it's I understand why you put it behind glass so I can't access it during the recording of the podcast but I want to find out what we're listening to today. Okay, so Rob, I'm not going to tell you. I want you to listen to these four bits of music and see if you can tell me what we're actually talking about today. Andy, I'm feeling something quite deep happening in all of those four songs. It's got, it's got a real uh, resonance to it. The first one, 
had you know a real sort of bass riff beginning mm-hmm. and then the other one that sounded nearly it was very familiar to me nearly, nearly animalesque mm-hmm. uh jaws now okay that was hope we're not triggering anyone with, <laughs> with that but it's an amazing uh, evocative theme from you know a movie from the 70s and also queen's another one bites the dust uh all about the bass, I suppose. You're absolutely right. Today we're going to look at the bass. And you might, Rob, wonder why we're looking at the bass. I mean, we haven't looked at the treble or the alto or, or a tenor. Why are we looking at the bass? But the bass is really the um, the foundation of our modern musical system. And what is so amazing about the bass, which is, as I said, the foundation of our modern musical system, is that it was impossible for musicians to have a decent bass until recent time. So we have this bizarre conundrum where we have this thing that is so important to our music, but something that was almost impossible to really have in the the quality and quantity that musicians needed until recently. Why is that? That seems uh, like, like uh, I mean, obviously that's what you're going to uh, tell that's what me. That's what we're going to talk about. <laughs> but uh, like, it was a, a shortage of uh, wood for a double bass? <laughs> Something yeah. like that. No, but let me, before we go on to that, let me just give you a few quotes from um, musicologists in the past about how important the bass is. Because there's, So there's this guy called Zalino who in 1561 said, the bass part is the foundation of harmony. And then we had another guy called Christopher Simpson in 1667, so 100 years later, who said the bass part is the base and foundation of all other parts since one builds them upon it. So we have all of these really important quotes about how important the bass is. But as I said, we don't have the concept of bass. And one of the reasons we don't have the concept of bass is because... A bass instrument is a very hard instrument to to hear. A piccolo, if you think about it, a piccolo is very little and very high and you can hear it very easily. But if you compare the sound or the volume of a piccolo compared to the volume of a double bass, they're totally different. Mm. A double bass is a very soft sounding instrument, which we'll hear in a little while, compared to the piccolo, which is very, very high. So let me leave you with that for a moment. And then let's talk about this whole concept that I say it's the most important part of our, and the foundation of our modern musical concept. Now, if we go back to the Renaissance period, the Renaissance period, as I've talked to you about before, music was something we call had polyphony. Remember, where we have many lines of music and each line of music is of equal importance. So in the Renaissance period, it didn't matter whether you were playing music and you were playing the top part or the middle part or the bottom part. They were all of equal importance. Let's have a listen to this little bit of English composer Bird and we can hear how, try and listen, Rob, to all the parts. It's hard, but try and listen to all the parts and see that they are all equally important to each other.
Andy, it was definitely, uh, the image that comes to me, multi-layered. Ah. It feels like there were layers, mm. like a good pastry. <laughs> yeah. A good piece of phyllo. You're absolutely right. And, and I suppose the phyllo um, analogy is absolutely right, because if you think of phyllo pastry, every layer of the pastry is exactly the same. And that's the same concept with polyphony, that each of the lines are exactly the same. Okay. Now, as we've talked about before, when we move from the Renaissance into the Baroque period, and the Baroque period being roughly 1600-ish, music moves from that concept of polyphony, where all the lines are equal, to a style where we have uh, a top part which has the melody, a bottom part which has the, the progression for the chords, and then the middle voices, which are the filling bits, the harmony bits. And when we have this change, you have the bass part starting to become important and different from the top part. Okay, so it's not, when you say different, you're meaning it's not, it's not just like a reflection of the same melody or tune. It's actually got its own pathway. It's also got its own pathway. So let's have a listen to Jeremiah Clark's Trumpet Voluntary. Now I want you to please, if you can do this for me, Rob, I want you to play it for us twice. The first time I'd love you to play it as written. The second time, if you can up the bass so that we can hear the bass at a large, at a higher level, so that we can hear how the bass and the treble work together. Andy, I don't know if our listeners could hear that, but what I heard was it's like the the bass was going in its own pathway. I think what I said before, it's like the bass is not matching the melody, but maybe complementing is the word I'm That's looking for. That's exactly right, because what the bass is doing is the bass is playing the bottom notes of the chords. So the trumpet part is going off in its merry way, playing its beautiful melody. And then what the bass is doing is playing the chords, the bass note of the chords associated with that melody. And so the melody might be doing lots of trilly bits, but the bass only needs to play single notes around that trilly bit. And so the bass and the treble are different. And we call this bass and treble polarity as they both move sort of on each other's axis almost. In the Baroque period, composers needed to write an enormous amount of music. And music is becoming more complicated and they are needing to just sort of churn out music and music and music. The bass line, which is now becoming so important, starts to have a special writing to it. It's called figured bass, where the composer would literally just write out the bass notes and then would put numbers, almost like a shorthand underneath it. 
and the musicians playing the bass parts would improvise on those chordal structures. So just like jazz, if you know jazz and you know that a jazz chart has, you know, C7, A12, whatever it is, and the jazz musicians improvise on that, the Baroque musicians were doing exactly the same, improvising on the bass line that the composer wrote because the composer didn't have time to write out all the notes of all the chords. Okay, so basically given guidance. Yep. But, you know, work it out for yourself, double baser. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And the first piece that did that, we're about to listen to it, it's by a composer called Cavalieri, who wrote this piece in 1600. And this piece of music is the first piece of music which has what we call figured bass, where we just have the single line and then the bass on top of it. Before we go on, I'm actually going to play for you the bass line. And then we're going to hear what it sounds like fully transcribed. Okay, so Rob, here is the bass line. Now, it doesn't sound very exciting, but if we stick all the parts to it and the top part, the melody, it sounds amazing. Sandy, I could hear that bass. I mean, you know, you fitted in with that whole uh that with that music your bass line that you played on the piano i could hear where it comes in and yeah i can see it goes there's many different directions happening all at once that's right so what's happening is that the bass line is then being filled in by that the harpsichord and with the voice on top of it so the composer only needed to write that bass part with the numbers underneath and the person performing it knew and could understand what that meant and interpreted it and then brought it out to a full compositional piece. So it meant that composers didn't need to literally write out and and write out all the parts. They only needed to write out a bottom and a top, saving them a huge amount of time. Now that's the first problem we have when we get to this concept of the bass. We have another problem too. The other problem is, as I said to you, you know, the piccolo is a high instrument, the double bass is a low instrument, one's really loud, one's really soft. In the Baroque period, there was no instrument that was loud enough and low enough to give us a sound that was commensurate with the sound of the top. We need, when I said to you before, bass and treble polarity, we need an equally loud bass to our top to give us this sort of strength of sound. But there wasn't an instrument to do it. Okay, so I'm, I'm understanding it now. So you, like, it's hard to make a loud bass sound. Yes, absolutely, especially in the Baroque days and up until the, the 19th century because the whole 
physics and fundamentals of a bass instrument is that they are softer. Because if you think about it, the string of a double bass is a much thicker string than the string of a violin. Mm. And so the the resonance is going to be more fluffy sounding almost mm. than, than that sharp sound of a of a violin. And the double bass as we know it wasn't invented. So in the Renaissance period, we didn't have strings, um, violins as we know it, we had viols. And a viol sound is a much more primitive sound to the violin. Okay. And when we move from the viols into the Baroque period, and now melody is so much more important, the viols sort of start to die, and the violins that have these beautiful sound and the strings come into their, the fore. But the one viol instrument that survives is the bass viol, because we don't need more treble sounds, but we need more bass sounds. So the next excerpt I'd like to play is a little bit of a bass viol so you can hear what it sounds like. I'd never actually heard of what a viol was, so, and obviously they're still around, but underutilized, or is it, you know, just was that a bit of sort of retro? So viols are around in early music consorts and early music ensembles, but not and and played in early music, but not twentieth century music. But one of the interesting things about the bass viol is that it actually has a lot more strings than the four strings of a double bass. Mm. In fact, sometimes they had five strings and sometimes they had six strings. In fact, the excerpt that you just listened to, the bass viol, had six strings on it. And you can hear how soft the sound is. It's just not a big sound. And that caused musicians a bit of a headache because here we have an important part and we just don't have the instruments to be able to hear this sound. Now, that's a problem that we have in the 20th century too. Now, I'm do- doing a huge jump, 300 years, mm-hmm. but let's go and I'm going to get you to play this very, very well-known piece of music. So, Rob, just stop that there for a second. You're going to think that there was the conductor is conducting and nothing is happening. But in actual fact, we're going to listen to it again and I'm going to get you to beef up the bass again. And you're actually going to hear something that you've probably never heard before.
the rumbling of a double bass, the whole double bass section playing a really low C. And it's so soft that most people don't even know it's there. You think it just comes in with that theme that everybody knows from um, Space Odyssey. But in actual fact, there are these bars of a low rumbling C in the double basses, which is so soft that nobody even knows it's there. It's interesting, and I, I do think it was well used in Space Odyssey because I think from memory that's a scene where it's cavemen or the origins of man or whatever, and it does feel like very much like a raw origin kind of feel. I think you can hear it when I beef up the bass that it's there. I didn't realise it was there. It's amazing, isn't it? It's amazing. Mm. So this is, even in the 20th, 20th century, we still have this, this issue with these low notes. So... What we ended up, they ended up doing is having a section called the basso continuo section where you basically have any bass instrument you can play. So there might be some bass viols, there might be some cellos, there might be bass line on the harpsichord, whatever they've got that can play low notes or play it together play that part together to beef it up with as many people as possible. And in the Baroque period, the basso continuo is so important that pieces of music always state it. So you might have a piece by Bach and it will say violin, double violin concerto in D minor with basso continuo. So it continually, almost every piece talks about the basso continuo being there. But every piece of music in the Baroque has a basso continuo, has this group of people playing the bass line because it's so important. Now, there was one place in the Baroque where you could have as low a bass as possible, and that was in church. Ah, always coming back to church, isn't it? Always, always, because in the church, you can have a thing called an organ. And an organ, the beauty of an organ is that depending on the size of the pipe, depends on how high or low it is. And if you have small, thin pipes, you've got high sounds. If you've got big, huge, low pipe, big pipes, you've got really low, um, low sounds. We're gonna to listen to this hysterical organ. Now, you're not gonna get the full effect unless you see it, but I'll explain what's happening. It's this huge organ that has 128 foot pipes. It's one of the biggest organs in the world. It is enormous. And Rob, if you could just play some of this organ, I will then afterwards explain what is happening to the people around the organ and actually the guy playing the organ. love to see what that organ looks like 128 feet is a big organ it is a huge so that's the size of the low 
pipes. Now those pipes, when they're played, push out so much air that if you watch that clip, there are music stands flying around. There are the the guy who's playing it, his hair is flying everywhere. Um, it is so, there is so much air coming out of that pipe that it's just causing absolute chaos. And in fact, the lowest notes on that pipe are so low that they are almost inaudible to the human ear. And I read this fantastically hysterical quote or story from one lady and she was at her daughter's wedding and everyone is smiling and she sort of got this grimace on her face and the pipe organs going and they asked her later you know why weren't you smiling and she said her her dentures were vibrating so heavily because of the vibrations from the pipe organ that she was scared if she opened her mouth they may fall out so that is just giving you a little bit of an indication on the the strength of the the air coming through those pipes to give you that huge loud sound. Okay, I hope we uh, should have probably done a warning to uh-huh. all our denture listeners at the moment <laughs> to be careful to turn the sound down. But that's pretty spectacular, and it says about you know the physicality of sound waves, I suppose. Absolutely, absolutely. But also the problem that they had in the Baroque period because. You couldn't have all music in a church and you couldn't have all pipes that were that big. So, yes, they could have that deep sound, that deep resonance that they needed when they were potentially playing in church. But church was only one of the places that people played music in the Renaissance period. And so as a result of that, you had this music that had this section called the basso continuo trying to give the illusion of a big, heavy bass part in music that didn't really have it. I, I know we'll get there, but how do we solve this problem of you can't schlep around your 128-foot <laughs> pipes everywhere you go? No, but let's have a hold on that one. It will be explained, but let's leave it for a second because what I want to play for you now is a little bit of Baroque music so we can hear the concept of basso continuo. So Rob, we've now got a bass line, which is different from the, the top line in the Baroque period. Now what we have are composers who are trying to work out how to write really good bass lines and really good chord progressions. We've talked about this when we looked at both melody and harmony. And they fiddled around with a whole lot of chord progressions and came up with some that are really fantastic and used them as basically the model of so many pieces of music. They also realized that music sounds best when the top line and the bottom line are moving in opposite directions. We call it contrary motion. So if the melody is going up, the bass is going down. That just works best for the human ear. That's what we like to hear. Is it just feel? Is it like? I suppose it could be like you know, chords sounding right together. You do a you know a, 
a C E N G is a C chord. It doesn't work with a C D and a G. Okay, so it's a very good question. I think that there are two things. First of all, the best way there are a whole lot of very very important rules when you're writing harmony. And the best way to make sure that you are adhering to all those rules and in adhering to all those rules, you are making the best sound and the best music. The best way to adhere to those rules is by having contrary motion. So if you have the top line and the bottom line moving in the same direction, you end up with something called consecutives and they don't sound great. So that's why you have the contrary motion going on. Okay. And we also, they also discovered and realized that you could have a slow moving bass line and a lot of movement up the top. The bottom movement doesn't have to follow what's going up at the top. We're going to listen to a little bit of Albanoni's Adagio. And I would really try, it's really hard to listen to bass lines because we are so tuned to listening to the top lines, especially women. Women find it very hard to listen to bass lines because where we, we speak with high voices. So we're used to hearing top lines. But what I would like you to really try and do is listen to the bottom line and see how the bottom line is moving in comparison with the top line. So Andy, I, 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 you can hear the bass line in that. You can hear it started with a bit of a drone. It almost sounds like a drone. Yes, it all because it's that slow bass line going through. Yes, it's exactly so. The different pace. You have got the bass going at in one tempo, and the is it the melody? Yeah. Oh, it's the. Do we call it the melody? Absolutely. Absolutely. So the melody going at a very different pace. That's right. That's right. That that's exactly right. So when they were fiddling around. They realized that chord progressions that sound fantastic together are things called 1-5-1. Now, we have played that before, but I will play it for you again. One five one, And they realized that you can have a fantastic chord progression using five ones. I'm going to play you a chord progression, Rob. You may recognize it. It sounded familiar, but I can't, I can't, I can't put my uh, finger on finger it. on it yet. But I'm sure, I, like, I'm waiting for that aha moment. Okay, play the next excerpt.
You didn't walk down the aisle to it, did you? I didn't, but it seems like every second wedding. I'm sure there was one of one of the weddings in four weddings and a funeral had that. Yeah, probably. But it was very familiar, yes. Okay, so what is amazing about that chord progression is that there are so many pieces of music that use that same chord progression. And a lot of popular music uses that chord progression. We're going to have a listen now to a whole bunch of pieces of music that use that exact same chord progression. Good to hear some of those, let me tell you. And yeah, those familiar, familiar tunes. And it's interesting that Maroon 5 one seems to be used in many weddings as well. <laughs> it's incredible, isn't it? It's just, and when you hear it, you go, oh yeah, I knew I heard it. I mean, there's a whole bunch of other ones that I could have played for you too. But what's also really interesting is that sometimes that chord progression is just changed a little bit. One chord is just changed from one sort of, variation to another and then you have a whole lot of other pieces using that chord progression one of them being hysterically the ussr national anthem used that chord progression too (laughs) 
idea of how to do good chord progressions. And as I said, the chord progression from Puckerbell's Canon is, is one of the great chord progressions. They also realise, and when I say they, I mean composers of the Baroque period and moving on, realise that if you have a chord progression that moves in stepwise position, so one note followed by another note in, in a stepwise direction, it also cre creates fantastic chord progression. And the importance of a good chord progression, I should say, Rob, is that it's like good foundations to a house. If you've got a chord progression that isn't really secure and tight and moves in the direction that it should, it's like building a house on quicksand. You know, nothing is going to be stable. So a stable chord progression will give you stability in the music. And they discovered that a really good chord progression, as I said, is one that moves down by scale. We're going to jump ahead a little bit in time to the 20th century, and we are going to listen to a little bit of Nina Simone. But what I again want you to listen to is this chord progression. What she is playing in the left hand is a C major scale. Baseline is very familiar to me and very evocative and also, I mean, the whole Nina Simone story is so interesting as a sidelight. But, yeah, I, I see what you're saying. So she's, the whole song is underpinned by that bass. That's exactly right. And we call that a walking bass. And jazz music would be lost without that concept of, of um, walking bass, as would the Baroque period. So, again, we have this this hand-in-hand hand between the Baroque and jazz. There are so many similarities between these two periods. And you'd think, if I just said to you, jazz and Baroque, have they got anything in common? You'd look at me as if I was a twit. But in actual fact, there are so many similarities between them. And this importance of the walking bass, again, is one of them. So this doesn't just happen in the, in the jazz world. It happens in the in the classical world too. The English composer Purcell wrote an opera called Dido and Aeneas, and this piece of music is incredibly important. He wrote this in 1689, and in it we have the same sort of concept. You know when we listen to the Nina Simone, and that scale just kept on coming over and over and over. It's called a ground bass. Purcell used that concept of a ground bass in a really important aria of Dido and Aeneas. He uses this descending bass line and it's repeated 10 times throughout the whole of this aria, this same bass line. Again, a ground bass, just like Nina Simone did in her piece.
I mean, Andy, every time I listen to opera, it's so evocative, but you can hear, you can hear that bass line and, you know, her, is it her aria? Yes. Over the top? Yes, yes, that's exactly right, a song and aria. That's right. So, and what's so interesting about that aria is that Dido sings that, as she's singing, that brown bass comes back over and over and over again. We have the same thing in the 20th century, in the late 20th century, with a, um, a singer you may well know, a guy called Stevie Wonder. So we are jumping around a little bit here in periods, but Stevie Wonder wrote a piece called, or wrote a song called, They Won't Go Where When I Go. And this piece of music, again, has this simple ground bass that's continuously played over and over and over. And again, just like the Dido, it's all about life and death. So here we have both of these songs using ground basses and using the same subject matter as well. So before we play it, Rob, I want to actually play the ground bass, the bottom part of the, the song to you so you know what to listen out for. hear not only that it's moving up by step just like we heard with the Nina Simone but she was going down but we also have something called chromaticism where we have the the sharps and the flats and that just um, gives that little bit of spice to it so if I play that little bit again it gives this pull in the music that is so evocative said to me um, how how long did it take before they actually had big enough instruments and loud enough instruments to be able to have the sound they needed without having to have a, a basso continuo well the basso continuo dies out in the classical period because we suddenly start to have more double basses and the double bass sort of fills that part that space that the basso the bass viol had but we also have a different type of music in the classical period, so the basso continuo disappears. But when we move into the Romantic period, the 19th century, there's something in the world that totally affects everything, and that's industrialization. Mm. And with industrialization, finally, 
you can make instruments that are loud enough and deep enough to be able to um, fill that gap and have instruments that are, have got enough oomph in the bass. They're still soft, but they've got a lot of oomph. Let's have a listen to a little bit of a bass tuba. I mean, it's a deep sound. It's, again, not a big sound. I bet you thought that when you heard a bass tuba, so something absolutely enormous, that you were going to hear a big, loud sound. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, and you don't. It's a soft sound. It's a muted sound. It's a muffled sound. Mm. But it's a much bigger sound and a deeper sound than, than we could hear before. Now, in the beginning of the 19th century, we had a composer by the name of... Um, Johann Strauss and his dad Johann Strauss mm. so two Johann Strausses and they made a fortune by writing waltzes a waltz as I think I've said to you before was this new dance in the 19th century incredibly risque and everybody wanted to do it and they started to write music for waltzes now just imagine that you are waltzing at a, at a ball and you're all over the shop and your feet are all over the shop and you're making a mess of it, you need a little bit of music, a bar or two, just to get everybody's feet ready for the next little section. Johann Strauss, the junior, the younger, wrote music that had these little bars in them, connecting different melodies, but giving people enough time to get their feet together. And he used the lower notes the lower instruments to do this. So this is one of the first examples of these lower notes being used independently of an orchestra to be able to play music by themselves. And that ba-ba-ba, which sounds so innocuous, was so important for two reasons. First of all, because as a, as a dance, it gave you time to get your feet in order. But also, musically, it was so important because that ba-da-da of the lower notes in the orchestra, the lower instruments in the orchestra, they had freedom. They were actually playing something not accompanying a top part. Mm -hmm. They were playing something by themselves. Now, 
going back to the um, base tuba that we were talking about before and that finally in the 19th century we have the ability to build bass clarinets and contrabassoons and um, bass trombones and bass tubers and all these things that have a big loud sound or a bigger sound about them and a lower sound about them. We then get the guy Sousa, the American composer Sousa, who starts writing band music. And now that we have all of these low instruments, we can now have band music, which has this fantastic beat, this low beat that goes through it. So the band can march, being spurred on by both the drum beat, but also this fantastic chordal part in the lower instruments. So Sousa, that name is familiar to me. Any reason why I would know Sousa's name? Yes, because Sousa was the guy who wrote all the marching bands. So whenever you hear or, and whenever you watch um, American movies and you have the the marching girls and you have the boys um, about to play a basketball game or a football game and you see them marching the marching band, they're playing Sousa. And is there a sousaphone? There is a sousaphone, exactly. Now, a sousaphone is a tuba that is rearranged. So can you imagine walking holding a tuba? It would be virtually impossible. So what he did was he invented a sousaphone where you actually stand in the instrument. So the, the instrument is this big circular thing that you stand in so it's much easier to walk and play because you're standing in the instrument rather than sort of holding the instrument in your hand. So yes, he was the guy who invented the sousaphone so that you could march. So in the 20th century, we finally get the 20th century and now we have we can have orchestras with as as big a brass section as we want. And in the 20th century, one of the big aspects about music in the 20th century is the density of that bass part. So it's really amazing that at the beginning of the 1600s, they wanted this density of sound and they were unable to get it. But 300 years later, at the beginning of the 20th century, we suddenly have the ability to have this and we have so many pieces of music that use enormous lower bass sections. So let's have a listen finally to a different Strauss. This time it's Richard Strauss and his Alpine Symphony starts off with this big bass section. It's low and it's rumbly, but it's there.
So this piece of music, Rob, has two tubers, a contrabass trombone, a bass trombone, and heaps of horns. So he has used this enormous bass section in this piece of music. It really, like it really, it's like, it's so full. So, you know, when I first started to sort of research the bass, I thought, the bass, the bass is the bass. And I'm sure you felt the same way when I said that we were going to talk about the bass. The bass is the bass. But it's amazing how something that was is so intrinsic in our music was so hard to achieve, but so fundamental in it. it it's, it's this incredible juxtaposition between the two. I mean, calling it the bass, when I think of a building's bass, it is like, it is like the core sort of structure that things are built around. The other element is it's nearly got a rhythmic element to it. It's sort of, it, it's set, in, it, there's rhythm with the bass. And that's interesting, again, for two reasons. First of all, I think that when you have those low notes, they do have a frequency about them that you can sort of hear about it. But if you look at music, again, a totally different type of music, so music of the, the dance music of the late 20th century, 21st century, Bass and drum are sort of this thing that comes that's so important. If you think about, I know you and I go to nightclubs all the time, mm. um, but the, the bass and drum is such an important aspect that boom, 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 mm. boom sound. And that's what is really important in dance music today. Andy, I've really enjoyed this. And although some people think it's all about the bass, I think it's actually about the bass and its role within music how it sort of feel it, it, it is it's a core element and i've learned a lot but I, I am a bit peckish oh well it's lucky that we have a little picky sitting here just as teddy has been eating treats you can now have yours which is this this beautiful biscuit that uh whose recipe i found yesterday on the internet okay it looks lovely remember if you're enjoying coffee cake and culture make sure that you subscribe on apple podcasts Write us a review, rate us, let your friends know. You can also listen on Spotify. In fact, anywhere you listen to your podcast, we are there. Thanks so much, Robert Caldor. And um, I look forward to seeing you all next time for Coffee, Cake and Culture, the podcast. podcast has been produced by etales.com.au. That's www.etales.com.au. Does your company or organisation or even yourself need a podcast? Contact Rob at etales.com.au.